Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And can you believe it? I'm uh, I'm actually back here in the salon once again for a second day in a row. Actually, uh, I'm just uh, trying to catch up a bit on these podcasts because last month's uh, technical problems uh, set us back a little bit. Anyway, uh, right now I want to play the second half of the Terrence McKenna lecture that we started listening to yesterday. As you know, uh, this talk was given on the Hawaiian island of Maui in February of 1994. And it comes to us from fellow saloner Kevin Espison, whose uh, voice you'll hear as the uh, second or third questioner here in a few minutes. And uh, after we listen to this segment, I'll return with a message that Kevin sent to me the other day. But now let's pick up where we left off. As you recall, I'm sure, Terrence had just finished saying that it is time for us to all start speaking about the unspeakable, namely the importance of properly using psychedelic medicines if we are to turn away from our current path, which is really leading our species uh, toward extinction. So uh, now let's rejoin Terrence McKenna for the end of his lecture and the question and answer session that followed. So... Here we are, nine times in the last hundred thousand years, the ice has moved outward from the poles, destroying everything in its path. Our people crossed the Straits of Beringia thousands and thousands of years ago. They didn't have antibiotics, they didn't have MTV, they didn't have central air conditioning, but they managed to get us to this point. Now the ball is in our hands. We have global databases, we have uh, uh, the internet, we have systems of communication and data gathering undreamed of even 10 or 15 years ago. If we drop the ball, all of nature witnesses our failure and our unborn children are the recipients of the consequences of that catastrophe. So I think it's time to uh, begin to talk very, very frankly about the forced engineering of consciousness, about the re-shamanizing of society, about the rebirth of archaic values uh, before it's too late. If we do this, I really believe that we primates love a good scrap and that it's not too late. It's just almost too late. We are like someone awakening in a stupor in a burning house. It's time to stagger out onto the front lawn and sort things out or we're going to be crispy critters if we don't get our act together. So I want to urge each of you to consider yourself uh, self-selected to be here tonight and therefore potentially an ambassador for reason on this issue of consciousness expansion and self-exploration. Uh, 
This is how religion was practiced for the first million years of its existence. It was only later that men wearing dresses took over the operation and have been shoving it down everybody's throat in a very unpleasant form ever since. The Gaian matrix is there. Psychedelics work. We're not talking about sweeping up around the ashram for 12 years before somebody gives you the good. This stuff works. I mean, if you had taken five dry grams tonight in the confines of your home, instead of coming here, uh, you would be there now. So it is a tool which works. It doesn't, uh, it isn't controlled by any BDI faction uh, with a bunch of mumbo jumbo around it. It is self-directed, self-explanatory, and uh, anyone who loves adventure and who loves life, and who loves the experience of being, has an obligation, I think, to explore this. It's as much a part of your identity as your sexuality, your ancestral history, or your hopes and fears. And to ignore it is to choose to play with less than a full deck. Don't do that. Play with a full deck. Help launch the millennium. Let's save the planet and create a world that we can be proud to hand on to our children. Thank you very much. We'll take about a 15-minute break. I think they're dealing books and things in the back. And then we'll do Q&A from the audience, which is much more fun, I assure you. Thank you very much for coming out. And the first question is... What happened to the dinosaurs? Oh, what happened to the dinosaurs? An easy question. <laughs> well, I mean, there's argument about everything, but I think it's fairly clear that the dinosaurs were pushed into extinction by a cometary impact on the Earth. This is an inch. I mean, I don't know what lay behind your question, but I'm very interested in these kind of cometary impacts because they uh, create very sudden extinctions. And uh, those of you who attend the workshop, and some of the rest of you may know, I have a theory about time that is mathematical and predictive. And one of the if you're going to predict uh, the past anyway, one of the things your theory has to kick out is this extinction of the dinosaurs. And it now appears fairly clear that an object struck the earth and broke into two pieces, if not more, and impacted essentially in the Gulf of Mexico. And in a single day, they went extinct. Some of you may know, I mean, this is not simply something which lies in the distant past. Uh, this July, July of this year, an object of similar size will impact on Jupiter. This object called Schumacher Levy 9, which has broken into 25 fragments of about 2 to 5 kilometers each, 
is going to smash down on Jupiter uh, the week of July 21st. Those of you who follow these things on the time wave will see it there at the bottom of the novelty trough, uh, lending yet further credence to the idea. Yes. <laughs> You're it. Um, I found some mushrooms the other day. Um, <laughs> I never found mushrooms before, but I'm pretty darn sure these are psilocybin mushrooms. Um, do you know anything about drying them? I, I dried them in my tent, and uh, after about two days, they weren't dry. Did they turn to slime? No, 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 no. Um, they were almost all the way dry, but I didn't think they'd be dry enough to put into a plastic bag, and I sort of want to wait until the full moon. I did a few of them, actually. And were they the real yeah, they, yeah the, the sport print and the bruising and the taste and the smell, everything, everything was there. I came right out of the ground. <laughs> I, never, I never picked them up, like I said, but I'm pretty much sure these are red. Well, but, do you know anything about, are they fully go bad if I put them in the sun for a couple of hours? <laughs> that and dried up real quick. You know, well, the key to keeping them is to dry them very, very well. It, I mean, uh -huh. they shouldn't be rubbery at all. They should be as crisp as a crisp saltine cracker. So they aren't bad then? No, no, they're not bad. And then what you do is you put them in a, it, you know, these, I don't want to, I should get money for this, but a daisy seal meal system where you can suck the air out of the bag so that there's no air in it and so that the bag seals down very tightly around the mushrooms. If you use that system and then put them in the back of a dark freezer, they'll last virtually forever. What degrades psilocybin is light and moisture. And so you've got to get light and moisture out of the picture and then it will last for a really long time if you have a lot of mushrooms that you're trying to plant. Hi, I just wanted to know if you have heard about a book called The Mutant Message? No. Okay, I, I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's very interesting. I think it follows what you're talking about. Um, I love your idea of a collective consciousness and I think um, the book describes an aboriginal tribe in Australia that has been living out the, the way in which you're speaking, a collective. And what they've come to the conclusion of is that they can no longer procreate because they have recognized that um, they can no longer exist on this planet. And the reason they call the book the mutant message is that they believe we are a mutant life form on this planet that is destroying it uh, to the extent that they can no longer continue their lineage. And this is an interesting concept because it's the first culture I know that has selectively chosen not to breed. And uh, along with your concept of raising our consciousness so that we understand the destructive nature of ourselves, what about a parallel vision of reducing our population as these people are, of, of consciously choosing not to procreate at this time? <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you brought this up. Yes, I've been saying for some time that, and the mushroom pointed this out to me, if every woman had only one child, the population of the planet would fall 50% in 40 years. 
50% in 40 years without war, revolution, coercion, anything else. Now, when you suggest this to people, they say, well, didn't they try that in China and it failed? Yes, but you have to think about a couple of things. First of all, a, a child born to a woman in Maui or Malibu or Manhattan, that child will use between 800 and 1,000 times more resources in its lifetime than a child born to a woman in Bangladesh. Why do we preach birth control in Bangladesh? We should be preaching it on Maui, Manhattan, and Malibu because the women in those places are highly educated, socially responsible, global people and therefore are the population most likely to respond to this suggestion. If 15% of the women in the high-tech industrial democracies were to limit their childbearing uh, to one child, within 10 years, certain pressure indicators on the planet would begin to move away from the red and into the black. So I think that we have got to deal with this question of population. There are clearly too many people. And one woman, one child, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a psychedelic advocate to understand the impact of that. If the population of the earth were cut in half, everybody alive would be twice as wealthy. It's possible in 120 years that we could reduce the Earth's population to a billion very healthy, very comfortable, very well-educated people. Okay, that's part of what the mushroom said, and I think it may seem radical in some circles, but not here, perhaps. It also said something else, which I rarely mention, but since you brought it up, there are not only too many people, there are too many men. And I would be very interested in seeing a set of social policies, tax incentives, medical policies, insurance policies put in place to limit male birth. It's very rare in mammal populations that you have a 50-50 ratio of male to female. And in fact, it's well known that male infants are less robust than female infants. And the reason we have a 50-50 sexual ratio is because we artificially support males and withdraw resources from females. I suspect that in the high Paleolithic, the ratio was closer to uh, two to one. And my supposition in thinking about this is probably that the best ratio is about three to one. Uh, this is the way to feminize the human race if you're serious. This is the way to advance women if you're serious. Then what you have is less men, women whose uh, dedication to the reproductive activities is confined in time to the amount of time it takes to raise only one child. This would be tremendously uh, salutary to our problems. I've never heard it advocated, even by the most radical lesbian feminist 
yada yada. I've never heard anyone say male birth should be limited, but it obviously should. And through an amniocentesis and this sort of thing, we can steer ourselves toward a population with the predominance of females, and those females should have only one child, and 75% of those children should also be female. This would seem, and I don't consider myself a gung-ho feminist. I mean, I'm, I'm a feminist, but I don't read the literature or try to understand all the factions and theories. As a humanist, I advocate a reduction in male births. It just seems obvious that that's uh, the way to go. If it doesn't seem obvious to you, then let's have a public debate about it and at least make it part of the rhetoric of the culture that this is an option for people to think about. I, I can like to just add one thing. I'm listening to the uh, President's Council on Sustainable Development. It's very interesting when you bring up the population issue because certain social groups that feel they are not being heard because their numbers are not large enough feel that's their only trump card at this point. And um, that's real frightening, but I understand the need for social justice and that feels like their only alternative is to populate in order to get um, the respect that they need. So. But, but that argument, if that argument were true, that, pop, that numbers were political power, then China would be the most powerful nation on the planet. I, I don't see that. I think it's a, a, a false analysis. I think that the quality of life of your citizenry dictates your position in the hierarchy of, of global societies. It's a crazy argument to say that the for instance, the Hawaiians can only gain political power through breeding themselves into ever larger numbers. I mean, how practical is that? But people cannot afford large families. It's a prescription for further poverty, further overcrowding, and further neuro neurotic family situations. The child, the, ob the objection I hear to the one woman, one child idea is that only children are neurotic. But I don't believe this. I think the uh, post-industrial nuclear family model is extraordinarily neurotic because the parents model neurosis for the two children who are usually part of the picture. The nuclear family is a product of the Industrial Revolution. It is not a traditional social unit rooted in thousands of years of, of human uh, uh, experimentation. It's entirely a social unit can, uh, created for the convenience of the factory and the office. If we are gung-ho to return to archaic social units, then we have to return to the extended family. And of course that's very difficult because modern transportation makes it possible for families to exist, to spread out all over the world. But, you know, whether you're psychedelic or not, it's perfectly clear that if population is not somehow controlled, all other good works, all other liberal forward-thinking policies will come to nothing because the burgeoning population simply uh, sucks up the resources uh, that are freed. So, and yes, we have to then take on the Catholic Church and so forth and so on, but no group of people 
should be free to run around advocating policies that threaten the survival of the human race. I mean, that should be, if there are ideological crimes, that should be one of them. And the idea that you can run around advocating policies that wreck the land and push millions of people into poverty, degradation, and death is obscene. I mean, people didn't, uh, people didn't care for the Holocaust. That was a moral outrage. But the policies of the Roman Catholic Church push more people into early death, disease, and poverty than the Holocaust ever did. And yet, you know, they're perfectly free to run their bingo games and appear among us. Why? They should have to answer for this outrage. Of course, I have to tell you, I'm a recovering Catholic, so... <laughs> Terrence, you've, uh, you're advocating psilocybin here as uh, a possible key towards the necessary transformation in consciousness that we need, uh, you know, for this culture, this, uh, this current <coughs> civilization and continuum. And uh, you painted a wonderful picture about how we really are at a kind of a break point. I mean, something has to happen. But I'm just wondering, uh, do you have any kind of scenario, do you envision any way in which uh, it's possible for the widespread ingestion and usage of this stuff. I mean, it's currently criminal. Uh, it's, um, how can this work? How can it happen? I mean, it's something that you have to take, right? You have to have the experience, and you're saying that a large number of people have to have it. Well, there are different answers that range from obvious to inobvious. I mean, you're all probably up to speed on the legalization struggle, how hopeless it seems how prolonged the the debate recently i've been thinking about this in a slightly different way here's an idea <laughs> there is a plant called salvia divinorum probably most of you have never heard of it it contains a compound which is not an indole and which is not scheduled called salvorine alpha. When you take 20 leaves of this plant, which can be grown in most climates and everywhere in the world as a house plant very easily, when you take 20 leaves of this plant and chew it up and lie down in silent darkness, it provokes about 40 minutes of extraordinarily highly colored three-dimensional hallucinations. Let's keep salvia legal. Salvia is legal. There are no laws against it anywhere on this planet. There are no laws against this substance anywhere on this planet. Keep salvia divinorum legal and go home and plant it and grow it and take it and you will not be disappointed. I am, uh, this is not a shock. In other words, I test everything anybody tells me works, and it never does. This works, and in fact, chemists in the past six months have isolated the compound. It's called salvorine alpha. It's an isoquinoline. It's uh, absolutely unknown to uh, law enforcement. It has no history of human abuse. 
and it's active in the 200 microgram range, and it's smokable. Salvia divinorum should be kept legal. It should be propagated everywhere. It should be widely grown and taken. Psychotherapists can use it. You can organize your church around it. You can do whatever you want with it. If what we're trying to do is get the psychedelic experience into the public domain, this is the way to go. Once we secure that salvia does not cause madness, impotence, whatever, then uh, the, the issue of these other psychedelics will be seen in a different perspective. This, by the way, is very new information, and there are people who will shit a brick when they find out I said this to you tonight, because there's a debate going on in the upper echelons of psychedelia about whether or not this should be public knowledge. I trust that debate is now closed. <laughs> Uh, 
you know, I'm not sure it's a bad thing. I mean, how would you like all those people out driving around and shopping and getting in your way? It's good that they're off in their condominiums watching whatever they're watching. I'm not an anti-technologist. In fact, quite the contrary. I think technology is a fascinating extension of ourselves. And I think, you know, we're taking hold of the human image. We're beginning to dream the dream of becoming whatever we want to become. And we don't, it's very difficult because we're emerging from the umbrella of Christian theology that told us that human nature was sinful, blemished, fallen from its true state. And yet, you know, we really have to return to the point of view of the great Renaissance magicians like Marcello Ficino, who said, he said man, but let us say humanity is the measure of all things. Humanity is the measure of all things. We are the caretakers of the earth. That's not something we can choose. It's already a done deal. The earth is now our responsibility. And it's through technology that we dissolve some of our boundaries and knit ourselves into a community of global management and caring. I think that's very uh, important. I think technology has been obscenely in the service of profit. And science, too, has hoarded itself to profit. But what kind of world could be built if these things were in the service of art? It's our cultural values that are out of whack. There's no reason to go, uh, you know, beating on science or technology. It's the monkey manipulating and applying these things that needs to be thoroughly looked at and possibly pharmacologically rewired. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I've uh, read a lot of your stuff about DMT and that, so I just want to know what the difference between DMT and mushrooms are when they're intoxicated, because I've never been intoxicated with DMT. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, not so. Psilocybin and DMT are extraordinary structural near relatives. However, in the process of being metabolized in the body, psilocybin never becomes DMT. It, it passes close to it. DMT is, to my mind, um, the, the substance where all of these issues are brought to a white-hot nexus of intensity because DMT is very brief. It lasts on the order of 500 seconds, you know, under three, under five minutes for most people. You return to the baseline of consciousness. It's a human neurotransmitter. It occurs in many, many plants. It is the strongest of all naturally occurring hallucinogens. And looking at the uh, physiological profile, it is probably the safest of all natural hallucinogens. And that's an incredible challenge to everyone in this room. You know, the strongest, and the safest spun into one. So there's no excuse not to do it, you see. It's also, because of its extraordinary brevity, uh, a, a, an incredible challenge to those who want to criticize psychedelics. 
I mean, it's ridiculous to criticize a drug you haven't taken. I mean, it's sheer boneheaded know-nothingism. So I can respond to the argument of my critics that they can have a lifetime of criticizing psychedelic drugs, but they can't spend eight hours to take mushrooms, but surely they can spend ten minutes to smoke DMT. Well, once you smoke DMT, uh, I believe we have you. Uh, there is no going back, because it is such an extraordinary revelation not of any, any theogony of white lights or any Jungian or Freudian map of the unconscious, but rather the revelation of something utterly unexpected, overwhelmingly strange, definitely translinguistic, and repeatable on demand. You know, we're not talking about standing in cornfields here and praying for flying saucers. Uh, uh, DMT is a reliable method for crossing in to a dimension that human beings have debated the existence of for 50,000 years. Is there an invisible nearby world inhabited by active intelligences with which human beings can communicate? You bet your booties there is. And, you know, if you don't think so, then tell me you don't think so and you've smoked 70 milligrams of DMT. Otherwise, we just don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I love your theory um, of the missing link and psilocybin being a possible solution to the missing link there. Um, and I think of how different we are as a culture now from what the people who lived then would have been who were connected to the earth and not breathing smog and didn't have their nervous systems blocked by the million stressors that we have in our day-to-day -day life now. And one of the things that concerns me as a long-time observer of psychedelics on people not so much psilocybin specifically, but LSD and, and more chemically altered ones. Um, and watching the way that that does sometimes affect different people different ways, and sometimes in a not always positive way. And when I hear people talking about using psychedelics as a general solution to something, a lot of alarms go off in me because I've seen so much temporary and sometimes long-term suffering from it. And I don't know, I'd like to look at that side of it. Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, I, I think that the problem is not with the psychedelics. The problem is with educating people. I mean, the way I do psychedelics is fairly infrequently and at quite high doses and in darkness and then this is my preference, but alone. And the way not to do psychedelics is frequently and at low doses and in socially dense and complex situations uh, because it draws energy from the thing. There are a lot of people running around who think they have their psychedelic credentials in order who have in fact 
only tickles the tummy of the beast. Uh, you know, there are social subclasses where you get a lot of respect if you say you're a psychedelic head. And a lot of people simply want entry into the social club. So they say, oh yeah, acid, I took a lot of acid in my time and this and that. But the question is not how much you took. The question is how much you took any given time. Because when I talk about the psychedelic experience, there are thousands of altered states. Uh, you know, yoga, hyperventilation, toxicity, dreams, uh, uppers, downers, juice. There are all kinds of altered states. The psychedelic state is very, very defined in my mind. Uh, it's characterized by boundary dissolution, by visual hallucination. That's important. The people who say they've taken these things and never hallucinated have to go back for a retread. It doesn't count if you don't hallucinate. They're hallucinogens, remember? So uh, it, it's, a, it's a very specific thing that they do. I don't even care for the disassociative uh, anesthetics like ketamine. I don't care for opium. I don't care for cocaine. I mean, I've done all these things, but they're not interesting. What's interesting is the transformation of, of, uh, of psyche, which goes on in the presence of these indoles. And we have to educate our children in the schools we have to teach them about shamanism. We have to teach them about risk. Uh, you mentioned the casualties along the way. There are people among us for whom boundary dissolution is not the problem. Their boundaries are dissolving all the time. And they are not good candidates for psychedelics. Uh, they are uh, fragile made fragile by the same set of traumatic uh, uh, forces that may have made you not fragile. But as a general rule, if you have psychic health, psychedelics are not going to uh, harm you. And I've always felt that, uh, that people know whether they're at risk from these things. I always believe Tim Leary made this statement, but when I tried to give him credit for it, he expressed amazement and said he never said such a thing. But somebody once said, LSD is a substance which occasionally causes psychotic behavior in people who have not taken it. And I certainly found that to be true. Uh, it caused members of my family to become psychotic who had not taken it. And I'll bet you that if we could look at the number of emergency room admissions caused by LSD, most of them are caused were people who didn't take it, but who had a coronary thrombosis when their child told them they were taking it. Something like that. So uh, we have to educate our children. We cannot we have no shamanic tradition. We don't initiate our children into sex or anything else. 
We need to create a neo-shamanic institution, and I see modern psychotherapy as a, a, a kind of incipient shamanism that could educate people. But as long as we tolerate uh, the propagation of media lies, disinformation, hysteria, then we're going to have casualties. And, and there are also, you know, unstable personalities who simply do not follow the directions. Everything has directions. Whether you're, you know, ironing your clothes, tuning up your car, or taking psychedelics. If you don't follow the directions, whose responsibility is it if you screw up? So we have to educate our children, educate ourselves, get these things out of the closet, and make them part of the culture. That's the way to deal with sexuality. That's the way to deal uh, with drugs, maturely. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I agree that education is um, one of the major importance of, of uh, being able to understand what we're doing to our minds and to our bodies. Um, and what you were talking about with Timothy Leary, I remember reading in one of his books that he, he said that uh, LSD leaves your system in 20 minutes or with your first um, urinary. Urinary, urinary. <laughs> your first pee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, and so that reason to believe that it's completely your mind that, um, that helps understand what's going on within you and not actually the drug itself which it helps open up doors but then it's your own mind that keeps doors open well i think that's true to a degree i was thinking about this last night for some reason it has to do with what you bring to it and you know we all have an obligation to be experienced and by that i mean uh, you know, if you've always lived in a small town south of Hudson Bay and you never learned to read and you don't watch TV, you don't bring much to the psychedelic experience. I am filled with a ravenous curiosity for everything. Uh, uh, unexplored countries, ancient languages, forgotten cultures, uh, abandoned philosophical systems, uh, the detritus of the human experience through time. I love all that stuff. I read constantly. Other, and consequently, I have a lot of data for the thing to manipulate. It can only communicate with you in words that you already possess. So uh, the psychedelic experience is most dramatic for people who have had a lot of other experiences, I think, because they bring something to it. I'm just going to say that with my own experiences, I've been able to um, counteract any bad vibes, I guess, that were coming my way through the will of knowing that it's out of my system and it's merely my mind, and um, helping people go through whether it be a bad trip or not may seem that it's your mind that, uh, I don't know if that's making any sense, but that uh, knowing that it's not the drug and that it's your mind that's doing the evolving, that you have the capability of stopping at any time and going to sleep and waking up the next morning and continuing your life. 
Yeah, well, I don't want to knock the prop out from under you, but I don't know how secure this data is that LSD leaves your body in 20 minutes. Uh, I'd be interested to see the papers that secure that. It is your mind, but what is mind? You know, philosophers have been at this for thousands of years. Nobody has a clue. Not a clue. What is mind? Uh, is, it, is it the electrochemical activity of the brain? Is it where in the body does it originate? You know, with all the fancy instruments of modern medicine, no one has ever seen a thought form in brain tissue. No one has ever been able to make a direct analogy between an EEG tracing and a thought. Thought is still very, very mysterious. Uh, when I think that I will close my hand into a fist, that's a miracle. That's mind over matter. No philosopher in human history has ever been able to explain how that simple act takes place. That tells you that philosophy has been staying well away from the world of direct experience because every day we experience willing our body to act and yet we say mind cannot affect matter. Well, why do we have this contradiction? It's because we don't want to admit the primacy of mind. Do you want to say something else? Okay. <laughs> you? Yeah, go for it. I have a book. Um, I found mushrooms too the other day, actually. And a very special place on the island. And unfortunately, they did turn to mush because it was doing a, a new experiment with them that didn't quite work. Um, I wanted to know if you felt that there was any medicinal properties for psilocybin. Um, I personally had uh, stomach problems for the last couple of days. And after taking a few of the mushrooms um, completely relieved any problems that I have as far as a theoretic or a tonic goes. It's your mind, yeah. <laughs> but, but let me say something about this question because it came up twice. The, the reason I asked the question, did it turn to slime of the mushroom, is because there are two kinds of mushrooms. Uh, I mean, there are many kinds, but two categories of mushrooms. That some mushrooms do what is called auto-digest. This is where when you pick them a few hours later, they release a lysolytic enzyme in the cells and they turn to slime. And the two kinds of mushrooms that are most common in the Hawaiian Islands are coprinus and, uh, and uh, uh, paniolus. Both grow undone, both blue, and both turn to slime. And both contain uh, chemicals not related to psilocybin, which could kick up your stomach a little. So uh, there are other mushrooms, much rarer out here, which don't auto-digest and which have a purer signature for psilocybin. One of the things that's always puzzled me about Hawaii is why there aren't more mushroom growers out here. And it's because when you grow mushrooms here and then you try to sell them, you're met with the argument, why should I buy your mushrooms when I can pick them in the pastures? 
The answer is because these are different mushrooms and much superior to what you can get in the pastures. So there's more to it than just psilocybin mushrooms. You want to get psilocybin mushrooms in a vegetable matrix free from any other physiologically active compound. Yeah. This will maybe be the last. <laughs> certainly for me has helped me open to wisdom of nature that comes from being in a completely divine uh, atmosphere and allowing wisdom to come. And that is true of so many of my particularly women friends, but men who have balanced their men experience. And there certainly are, we are everywhere in every culture that I've traveled in and we are opening to the shamanic experience in white people. And um, so how do you recommend and how do you see the Gaian information, the mind, uh, joining and supporting each other and ourselves to the next level? Well, it's basically, as I said, people have to come out of the closet and people have to act from their convictions. I mean, I think one of the most disturbing things that can go on is where you go to visit some people and they say, um, we can't smoke till the children go to bed. This is nuts. This means that this is a house divided against itself and it can't possibly stand. If you don't have the guts to tell your children you smoke dope, then you shouldn't smoke dope for crying We have to come out of the closet. And I know, you know, it's not easy. People are teachers, people are this, people are that. But on the other hand, what what's the payback for being chicken shit? The payback is continued repression, continued manipulation. If you don't claim the right to be able to explore your own mind, then all other rights are potentially to be taken from you. And I think you know, there are all kinds of stories going around. Potheads can't think straight. People who use drugs don't bathe enough, so forth and so on. This is, this is a kind of ism. It's not sexism. It's not racism. It's dopeism. And, you know, enough of that. Uh, we pay our taxes. We hold down top jobs in advertising, publishing, media, entertainment, science, software writing, so forth and so on, and we should have the same respect that is due everybody else in this society. The people who are repressing dope culture have no agenda. They have no plan. Their plan is to keep everybody in a state of semi-anesthesia until the shit hits the fan. That's the only thing they can figure out to do because they don't know how to feed everybody. They don't know how to cure AIDS. They don't know how to depopulate uh, these enormous cities. They don't know how to generate enough electricity for the evolving population. They have no answers. All they have are spin doctors and cosmetics and uh, delay and uh, disinformation. So I, I do not understand the passivity of people on these issues. The world is 
slipping through our fingers because we don't have the courage to stand up and halt it. And if we don't have the courage to stand up and halt it, we are voting with the dominators. We are voting with those processes that will make us extinct. These governments, these institutions exist to serve us. It's no big deal to throw down an institution. It's not even a big deal to hang a few dominators. Why are we so polite? Why are we so willing to go along with this shell game? Uh, it's only the entire future of the planet that's at stake. So do we want to be like the Jews in Europe who went quietly to the trains to be taken to the camps? That's the spectacle that I fear. I think we just have to say this dope thing is the biggest shock in history. I mean, governments have always made money off dope. And whenever any particular drug became too odious for them to continue their practice, then they handed it on to some mafia and took their cut in kickbacks. And that's what's happening now. Meanwhile, psychedelics, which unite people, dissolve barriers, make us one with each other, and have never made a lot of money for anybody compared to the real drugs of commerce, heroin cocaine and that sort of thing, uh, these drugs are stigmatized and suppressed and we commit our individual acts of civil disobedience in our fine homes with the front door locked, but we never can seem to reach out to each other sufficiently to create a community that says, we've had enough, we're not going along with this anymore. That's how human freedom makes progress. The Magna Carta was signed when the Dukes of England told the king to stuff it. And women got the vote when they demanded it. And black people got respect when they demanded it. And gays found a place in society when they demanded it. And when we insist, then the dialogue will begin and not entail. So uh, I think the responsibility is on us. We can whine all we want about the helicopters overhead and the friends taken off to jail, but unless we're willing to stand up and be counted, uh, you know, why don't I have a hundred competitors? I'm making good money sitting up here talking to you. You too could have a life if you would advocate psychedelics from the stage. Well, I think we've beat this horse to death. I see that it's getting late. Uh, I hope that you'll come. If you aren't signed up for the workshop, I hope that you'll come. If you can't come, I, I appreciate your coming out. I hope you'll read my books, the books of my colleagues. There's a great deal of psychedelic publishing being done now. Uh, Sasha Shulgin's book, uh, Jonathan Knott's books, Eduardo Luna's books my books, uh, inform yourself. The first stop for a serious psychedelic voyager should be the public library. Inform your children, talk to your friends, and uh, let's try to make a better, stonier world out of the world we inherited. Thank you very much.
You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, how was that for a rousing call to arms? I really can't ever recall hearing Terence, uh, or anyone else for that matter, make such an impassioned plea for our species to begin to discuss and explore uh, both the uses of psychedelic medicines as well as the outer realms of consciousness, imagination, and possibility. But as Terence just mentioned, it is sometimes easier said than done, uh, particularly since we are now even deeper into a fascist police surveillance state than we were back in 1994. In fact, uh, right now we're in a spot that, uh, I'm sorry to say, at least seems to me is much worse than the picture that my grammar school teachers uh, painted back in the 1950s of the Soviet Union. You know, just like the old USSR, the USA now has become a country that won't hesitate to take your job or your children if you get too far out of line. So, while I agree with him completely, uh, that doesn't mean that I advocate walking into a police station or a congressperson's office and lighting up a joint or something. You know, that's not going to do anyone any good, uh, particularly if you're held in a cage until you become more docile. Fortunately, uh, I'm at a point in my life where I don't really have much to lose. You know, uh, soon I'll be completing my 70th year in this life, and I realize that I have a lot more yesterdays than I have tomorrows. And uh, so I have no problem being up front and publicly uh, coming out and agreeing with Terrence McKenna that the proper use of psychedelic substances, uh, not by everybody, but by those who are called to this work, well, that... uh, And the ideas that are brought back from those exploration of deep consciousness may be our best hope for the long-term survival of our species. And uh, (laughs) if you happen to believe in reincarnation, then uh, you have an even greater stake in keeping this species going for as long as possible. However, there are many ways to support this line of thinking, and they don't all require that you expose yourself or those around you to uh, some unwanted form of government intrusion. But no matter what you do decide, uh, by far the most important thing that you can do right now, today, is to continue to read and gather as much information as you possibly can about these magical plants and chemicals. You know, back in uh, 1994, when we, uh, when this talk was recorded, Terence was recommending that you start by going to your public library. Of course, uh, today it's uh, much easier because all you have to do is surf on over to arrowid.org. That's E-R-O-W-I-D.org, and uh, from there you're going to find all of the links, books, and leads that you're going to need to uh, get really rolling. And uh, speaking of gathering more information about uh, ways that others are thinking about the major issues of the day, I want to let you know that uh, there still are a few spaces left for the Terrence McKenna Beyond 2012 workshop that uh, Bruce Damer and I are leading at the Esalen Institute near Big Sur, California. Uh, As I've told you before, it's going to be held over the weekend of June 15th to the 17th, And uh, I actually recognize uh, many of the names of those who have already signed up. And uh, I'm here to tell you that uh, it's going to be a very interesting and eclectic crowd indeed. And uh, happily, there are about the same number of women and men attending, so uh, the energy should be perfect. Uh, And I'll put a link to that event at the bottom of the program notes for today's podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Now, one final thing that I'd like uh, to mention today 
comes from a message that I received from uh, Kevin Espison, the man who made the recording that we just heard. And here is part of what he had to say. Considering the response Terrence gave to the questions asked at about the 1 hour and 23 minute mark, I would ask you to play this part if possible. I have so much to say about this issue, and it is about time someone shouted out the need to start a religion around Salvia before it is too late. It just became illegal in Pennsylvania last August, 2001. And I have been consuming it since the day after hearing of this news in the first week of February, 1994. Anyway, I would jump at the chance to speak about what was said on that Maui magical weekend and invite all to my Facebook page to begin the dialogue. I'm looking forward to hearing some sort of response as I find it to be difficult to talk about these subjects with most people and it is hard for me to connect with those few others without egos getting in the way. Naturally, inertia has a lot to do with this difficulty in connecting, but then again I think that the struggles in life are a necessary requirement for our development and to remove them would only cripple us on many levels. However, my struggle has been going on for almost 44 years now, and I think it might be time to break out of this cocoon and spread my wings in the sunlight. So, uh, if you'd like to enter into a dialogue with Kevin, you can find him on Facebook. The uh, spelling is K-E-V-I-N-E-S-B-E-N-S-E-N. And uh, the only thing that I would like to add to that is that just as is uh, my rule for discussing psychedelics in public, any and all talk about uh, buying and selling and or even where to get them should be strictly off limits. Uh, so far, there's no law prohibiting other kinds of discussions about these substances. And uh, that is exactly what I think Terrence McKenna was getting at when he said to come out of the closet. You know, it, it doesn't mean that you uh, do or say anything incriminating. It means that we at least should be able to talk about these issues without fear of reprisals. And uh, discussions like the one Kevin is promoting are an excellent way to begin. Uh, already, you know, uh, talk about end-of-life psilocybin studies and MDMA studies is uh, standard fare in the mainstream press. So we've already begun. Uh, now it's up to us to uh, keep the conversation going. But never forget that uh, anyone that you don't know really, really well who asks you if you can help them get something illegal, well, uh, my opinion is uh, the chances are almost 100% that that person is an undercover agent trying to entrap you. And uh, I hate ending the podcast on such a negative note, but uh, hey, you are an important part of our worldwide community. We, we need you, so be careful out there. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>